Amen. Amen. All right. Well, coming now is uh, a young man who did a pastoral internship at Cross Point last summer and fall and then went away to Bible College in Southeastern Bible College in Wake Forest, North Carolina, is back for the summer working in the front office as an admin assistant. Many of you know him, I'm sure, but he's coming to preach on 2 Samuel 9, Stephen Knowles. Stephen is uh, the son of a Baptist pastor here in town. His dad pastors uh, uh, Waldrop Memorial Baptist Church down in the Hilton Avenue area and just a dear family. And uh, Stephen is a delight to be around and loves the Lord and has just got some gifts. So Stephen, come and bless us with the Lord's word out of 2 Samuel chapter 9. All right. If you would turn your attention to 2 Samuel chapter 9 for me, that's where we begin. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. The king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. I will show kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. First of all, that took a lot of practice because there are a lot of hard names in that. <laughs> so wanted to point that out that I put effort into that. But when you're looking, when, when you're doing what we're doing here and parachuting down into a chapter with no context, we're not preaching through 2 Samuel, I have not led you up to this point, there are things that we must do, that you must do, as effective Bible listeners, that I must do to properly teach this passage. And these are things that hopefully you would be able to take and apply to any passage, but we're going to specifically address them to 2 Samuel 9. So there are three things that we can 
always look for in any passage whenever we just look at it. There will always be contextual significance, there will always be personal significance, and there will always be gospel significance. Now, when we look at this, the history, what the people are doing, what has happened to lead up to this position is the context. That's what we're going to look for first. Secondly is the personal significance. This is not what's significant about it to you. I mean, you're kind of important, but you're not important to this. So what we're talking about here is Mephibosheth, David, and some Zeba. We won't get too much into him, but the personal relationships and things that are significant to these people. And then third, because we know that the whole Bible works together, that from page one to page, I don't know, 3,000, I don't know how many my Bible has, to the very back of it, it is all proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every page has something that fits into the overarching theme of the gospel. So we need to find how it fits, how it sits, and how it applies. All right? So, with no further ado, let's just begin. The contextual significance of chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, David calls the son of an enemy before him. We do not need to speculate what happens to the sons of enemies when new kings take over. We have really clear evidence throughout history that they are exterminated. There is no reason other than what we'll see when we look back and find some more context for David to ever show this level of kindness to an enemy. In fact, if we look forward to uh, 2 Kings chapter 10, a ruler that God has established named Jehu takes over from an evil king and in chapter 10 has them behead all 70 of his sons. This is a normal contextual way for this to be handled when you take over. This is a scriptural way for it to be handled. The evil has been overthrown and the good is taking over. That is how we would normally see this happen, but we don't see that. And we don't see that for a reason. I believe you will see up on the screen 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 through 7. 17, sorry. Uh, this is Jonathan speaking to David. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off yourself, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So, when we see that, we understand that David's reign, David's rule in context of 2 Samuel 9 is being marked by faithfulness to a previous covenant. David is showing his kindness and faithfulness to his brother in Christ. His brother. So, when you compare that to a previous chapter, like chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, we see in, when they're listing David's victories that his rule was marked by the bloodiness of it and by his conquering nature. So we have one chapter telling us David is killing people. It's bloody. He's overcoming and another showing his kindness and grace. And this balance of rule is reflected throughout the entire Bible. As this foreshadows what's to come later and how Jesus interacts and how God shows his wrath and mercy on people, this is all fitting together. Verse 3, uh, verse three of uh, chapter 9 says, 
And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? It says more, but I'm going to stop there. So what's really important here that we understand is the kindness of God David is talking about is the same weight, the same idea as what Jonathan says in verse 14 of 1 Samuel 20. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love. Steadfast love, kindness of God are translated differently. It's the same word. And what it means is an eternal securing bond. It's referenced again later when he says covenant. They covenant together to never change. Now, something that maybe it lost if we just jump into a chapter like this is chapter 20 of 1 Samuel and chapter 9 of 2 Samuel are very spread apart. Lots of stuff has happened in between those two. Jonathan and Saul are both dead. It's been 20 years. So if he didn't uphold, if he did not remain faithful, that would be totally understood by everyone there. His commitment was to Jonathan and Jonathan's family, and Jonathan's gone. Everyone that's left is a threat to him. In fact, another one of Saul's sons a few chapters earlier, I'm not going to try to say his name, it starts with an I, I attacks him and tries to take over David's kingdom. This has jaded, or it should have jaded David to his previous commitment to not wipe out Saul's family. You would want to wipe out the family because if at any point during David's rule, something's going wrong, you don't want some dude that's like, hey, well, it was never this bad when my dad was king. You should make me king, right? David wants his own rule. He does not want someone who was not chosen by the Lord to usurp that. So verse three, as I read before, tells us that Mephibosheth is crippled. Mephibosheth cannot get away. That's what crippled means. He can't walk. If David's coming for him, he can't do anything about it. He is completely at David's mercy. David is completely right outside of this covenant in context of what he's doing. David would be completely right to kill him if he had not given his word. But David gave his word. David, traditionally in the Old Testament, upholds that. At least in this chapter he will. We'll get into Bathsheba if I get another chance to teach. So, uh, part of Mephibosheth's crippling was when he was five years old. Second uh, Samuel 4, 4 tells us that when the news of Saul and Jonathan's death gets to where Mephibosheth is as a five-year-old, his caretaker picks him up and flees. She trips and drops him, and he becomes lame on impact, can never walk again. So he lives his whole life being provided for by others. Uh, Let's see, what was the name of the man who took over for him at Lo Amel? Uh, Machir, the son of Amiel at Lo Debar, uh, has been providing for him for his entire life, has been taking care of him. Mephibosheth is incapable of doing anything for himself. But something that's interesting here and that you don't really get at face value is that in verse 8, when Mephibosheth says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That dead dog phrase is used three times in the Old Testament. Every time it's either said by David or said to David. This is the second of the three. The first one, David refers to himself as a dead dog in the presence of Saul. So this is likely Mephibosheth referencing, I know the history my family has with you. That when you said this, my father was unjustly trying to kill you as the Lord's anointed. And I know that, and I know I'm not deserving of what you give me. But David is giving it to him anyway. 
So that is our context. That is our setup for where we are. Our second point of significance is its personal significance, specifically to Mephibosheth. We set up a lot of David in that last part. So let's talk about Mephibosheth a little bit. When he's brought before the king, he is brought presumably to his death. He is not expecting this to go well. Why would he be? He knows that David promised, but he also knows that David's a man and might go back on that. So he is coming before him as a poor, cripple. I struggle to say the word useless. He's not really useless, but he can't work. He can't provide for himself man. And David brings him to himself. He comes in with absolutely nothing. And the first thing David says to him is, I'm going to restore a king's estate to your name. So that's very valuable. I'm going to bring you into my table. So let's, let's look at the first part of that first. Uh, the financial gain of having a large plot of land given to Mephibosheth is nothing short of overwhelming. This is the equivalent of him winning the lottery as he walks in this room. He goes from nothing to he has money and he can take care of his family forever. In verse 4, we're told that uh, because he was being kept inside the house of Machir, that that implies Machir is the one with the money and he has nothing. So he's being brought out of that. And instead of now him being in Machir's house and him serving others, people like Ziba and Ziba's 15 sons and 20 servants are given to him to support himself, to provide for him forever. This also points to the significance of the plot of land that's given because 36 men are specifically there to work it. Now, if we in modern American sensibility, think of like a 36-man business is like, I mean, that's big, but it's not like giant. It's not Fortune 500. Let's just be clear that that's a lot of people. God built the nation of Israel out of the 12 sons of Jacob. That was 12, and this is 36. So David has given a lot to this man. But that's not even what's significant. If you look at how the chapter is written, if you look at what's mentioned the most, it is not important to the author. He mentions it, but what he focuses on is the second thing that David increases him in, which is the increase in prominence. It is significant because David invites a man who is not of his family to his table. The table is intimate. If I'm going to ask my father for money, where I'm going to do it is at the kitchen table right? If your kids are going to talk to you about their grades, you meet together at the table. It is a time of discussion. It is a time where the child has the ear of the parent. David is giving this position to a man who's the grandson of an enemy, the grandson of a man who brought nothing but pain to David. He's giving it over to him. Access to the king is what is the gift. It's mentioned four times in this chapter, as opposed to the other gifts once or twice. Four times in verses 7, verse 10, verse 11, and verse 13, it is repeated to us as a teacher repeats us things from up front to say, this is on the test, this is important. We are repeating this as we write it in scripture to say, this is important, take note that the table is open to Mephibosheth. And then that really opens up our third and most important thing to look for in passages, and that's the gospel significance. Let's start this this way. Uh, I have been outside 
and seen the shadow of a bird of prey fly over me. Not sure what it was. It was big enough that it covered my body in a shadow and shot off in front of me. And when something, that's significant, like that's a big deal for me. I like birds. I like, that's cool. So when something like that happens, my inclination is not to dig in the dirt or look around and map out where the shadow was. My eyes shoot upward into the sky to find the true thing that left a shadow on me. What we see in this text is a shadow of the glory of the gospel. We see David bringing in a man to his table that foreshadows what Jesus will do with us. That should not make us freak out about the shadow. That should make us look forward to the gospel. That's how we see what these people are saying. This is how this would be read by them. This is a shadow of things to come and the king that's coming to redeem them. So, I got excited right there. So let's keep going. What's important here in terms of the gospel? David is not an archetype for you. That's how I'm inclined to read the text. That's how most people are. When I look at a passage about David, I tend to say he's a broken, sinful man that's trying to do his best. I kind of fit that mold. I'm David. How can I be kind to people around me that don't deserve it? If I stood here and preached that to you, it would be a misrepresentation of this text. What is happening here is David is representing what Jesus will do. Mephibosheth, the broken, lowly, incapable person, is representing the future us. So we need to be clear on that. There are points of application that we can and will pull from David's life and how we're to act. But primarily, this text is about Jesus. Mephibosheth being brought to the table of the king is representative of what happens with all of us. Mephibosheth was physically dropped and physically broken and physically crippled. We, according to Romans 5, were dropped by our spiritual father Adam, are spiritually crippled, are spiritually unable to come before God, and are spiritually redeemed. That is referenced here. And what's really another point of, that we can just pull from this is that every meal, it says that he ate at David's table forever. Every meal that Mephibosheth enjoyed points forward to how we get to, as a church body, come together and enjoy communion together. This actually would be a really good point of doctrine for why we would fence the table. Why we, when we bring ourselves together and gather and take communion, Mephibosheth being specifically chosen to come before, we as the body of Christ being the specific people that are brought as joint heirs with Christ, that parallels really, really well and really effectively for us to learn how we should do communion. Finally, uh, let's, let's get to the gospel. God shows in shadow and in a, in a hard to completely understand method in 2 Samuel 9 what the gospel is. Fortunately, he really, really clearly states it in Romans 3, 21 through 28. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It was not about Mephibosheth bringing himself to David because he deserved it. It was about David showing the future kindness of the Savior redeeming us. Like David and Jonathan's covenant of kindness together, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past covenanted together to redeem those who do not deserve. So, that is the cultural, personal, and gospel significance of this passage, but we need to apply it. Just understanding those things doesn't really help me live a more Christ-centered life. It's just knowledge. How do I bring this into my own life? There are three ways for us to continually apply this passage specifically to our lives. The first one is for us to teach ourselves and our families about God bringing people into his covenant. This is this is first for a reason. This is what the point of the text is, is for us to understand Jonathan and David's covenant represents Jesus and the unregenerate covenant, him bringing people to himself and regenerating them. This is how we're to understand it. This is what we're to explain to everyone. It is for us, it is for our families, and it is for our neighbors and the non-believers around us to constantly hear this through how we teach. I want you to walk away knowing I think that's what's most important about this text before I go to the next one. The second thing that we can understand is we need to teach ourselves and our families what it means to keep our own covenant promises. This is important. This is not primary. We understand that because Jesus set this type of upholding his own covenant with people, we should, as a reflection of the Savior, uphold our covenants with one another. The first two ways that this sticks out to me are in marriage. God has called us to covenant to one another. In your marriage, that is you sticking it out. That is you not breaking that bond. Secondly, that comes in the form of church membership. We covenant together. We sign a church membership covenant. We are one another together for the sake of upholding one another, challenging one another, and growing together. And finally, the last, uh, the last way for this to continually apply to our lives is for us to teach ourselves and our families that character is best shown through how we treat the weak. While Romans 5 tells us that while we were still weak, Christ died at the right time for the ungodly. We show godlike kindness and mercy when people who don't deserve it are treated well by us. We glorify God especially when it is costly to show kindness to them. Jesus gave his life. David gave land that was rightfully his. We give sacrificially to one another. 
Jesus said himself that blessed are the merciful. This is how we show mercy to one another, by being imitators of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to teach. I pray that anything that was of me and not truly your word be burned from the minds of anyone listening so that all they're left with is the pure and holy scripture that you have written for us. I pray that in this room and in this church, you will raise up a generation of merciful covenant keepers in a world of cruel promise breakers to show your glory. All these things I ask in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well done, brother. Well done. I, um, I, uh, somebody told me oh, last week not to mention all the things that I liked about it because then I take all of your stuff. So I'm not going to do that today. And so remember, don't come up to him and say, I enjoyed that. Think about specific ways that Stephen helped us follow Jesus. Um, but I just want to say I was chastened by your points of application and how I need to I need to remember grace of the gospel to me and how that should influence and impact and compel how I treat the weak. Um, so praise God, brother. I was, I was ministered to. Thank you. Thank you for that. Listen, we're going to dismiss here in a second. Don't scoot out of here. Somebody was prayed for today, the names that were mentioned. Go up and meet them. Somebody that you don't know, go and, go and meet them. This couple just got married. Hand them a $100 bill. Um, somebody... <laughs> Somebody that you don't know, um, next Wednesday, Teddy Nagelvort is going to be preaching. Stephen Clayton. Clayton or somebody, yeah, is going to be, I'm not sure who, somebody, some young guy with a Bible. And, um, <laughs> but, like, let's sit at a table with somebody we don't know, and let's get to know one another. And um, praise God, brother, you served us well out of a, a, probably an Old Testament narrative that a lot of us are not very familiar with. And you know more about the Bible tonight and more about the character and kindness of the gospel in Christ because um, Stephen led us to that. So well done, brother. Praise God. All right, be blessed. We'll see you this Sunday in, in the Lord's house.